Thou eternal God. We could more easily count the stars in the sky than we could count the number of your mercies toward us. Oh Lord, how majestic is your name. How limitless is your might. How wonderful are your ways. We are fully aware of our condition before you. We have secret sins lurking in the dark recesses of our hearts. If your spirit doesn't use the word to point them out, they will grow into grotesque monsters. Father, we mourn our sin, our misdeeds, our transgressions, our offenses, our violations, our vileness. And we fly repenting to your outstretched arms. Have mercy on us gospel-abusing sinners. We claim Jesus, who doesn't make mountains out of our sin, but levels them. In the morning, when we rise, give us Jesus. In the daytime, while we work, give us Jesus. In the evening, when we sleep, give us Jesus. In this exposition, as we study, give us Jesus. This text talks to us about love, showing love in the gathering. Help us to grow increasingly out of love with this world and in love with your church. Father, there is no one here, no matter how advanced in the Christian faith, that can claim when your word is opened, they understand with perfect clarity all that you would teach them. There is no one here that no longer needs the illumination and help of the Spirit by whom these words have been inspired. No, we all need help. We all need assistance. This text will make demands on us. Give us a heart to obey your word. Give us feet to walk in your instruction. Give us hands to live gospel directives. We go to your word now. Not alone. We go corporately. We go with one another. It's a privilege. It's an honor. Thank you for granting it. It's through the blood of Christ we give this thanksgiving. Amen. Just because you are busy working in the church doesn't mean God is pleased with you. Paul shows us a church where the gifts are flourishing. People are busy as a bunch of bees. Look at them all working, all moving around. A lot of them are doing tongues. A lot of them are doing prophecy. Some have the gift of faith. Some have the gift of giving money and time, from the outside looking in, this church is the working church. They are giving food and clothing to the poor. They are giving strong doctrine. They are evangelizing, using this tongues gift to reach people of different languages. Corinth was a bustling city. This church in Corinth was a bustling church. Corinth was an active city. This church at Corinth was an active church. 
God has to be pleased. I mean, look at how busy they are. Isn't that the job of the church to be little worker ants? They all need to have a ministry. They all need to be doing something. Every member ministry. Charles Spurgeon taught that. A news outlet ran a story on John MacArthur's church early in his ministry and they referred to it as a church of 400 ministers. Everyone is working. Everyone is serving. That's the goal. 100% of people serving in some way. Well, Corinth had that and it still didn't please God. My job is not to keep you busy. My job is to give you the word and keep you loving. To equip the saints to love one another. Paul is going to show us a case study of the church in Corinth. It's true that they were a busy church. It's also true that in all that activity, they neglected to love each other. They are the loveless church. If you have ever been a part of a local church where they bickered and fought and didn't love one another, you know how important this is. You know scheduling ministries and exercising gifts will never make up for a lack of love in the assembly. The real danger a church faces is not the ministries ceasing or the busyness stopping. The real danger is when we stop loving one another. Christ's love expressed to us through the cross no longer works its way out in our relationships with one another. Paul didn't measure the health of this church on their giftings or how many ministries they had. He went straight to one area to measure their health. Love. Paul gives us three snapshots in the text. What it looks like when you stop loving people in your local church, verses 1 through 3. What it looks like when you start loving people in your local church, verses 4 through 7. Three reasons why you should never settle for anything less than loving people in your local church, verses 8 through 13. What it looks like when you stop loving people in your local church, what it looks like when you start loving people in your local church. Three reasons why you should never settle for anything less than loving people in your local church. We're going to run through them one at a time. First, what it looks like when you stop loving people in your local church. You say, oh, 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 they stopped loving? Then Paul must be about to show us a church where everyone is sitting on their blessed assurances and doing nothing. Wrong. This could be the busiest church in the Bible. Activity everywhere. Love nowhere. In these three verses, Paul will use if statements and hyperboles. Let us look at the if statements first. Verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul did speak in tongues. Don't let the if here fool you. This is not if Paul spoke in tongues. The next chapter reveals he did. 
That's not a debate. Paul is setting up a hypothetical situation. The original readers are fully aware Paul is describing their little local church. I spoke about tongues last week. You can check out that exposition if you missed it. I'm not going to rehash it here. Tongues were a first century gift given to the first century church. I will talk even more about that in the next two weeks. Tongues were an actual human language, not incoherent babbling. It was never ecstatic utterances in the Bible. It was always a human language that non-native speaker was granted the ability to speak in order to proclaim the gospel. This church was abusing the gift of tongues, competing over the gift of tongues, using the gift of tongues in an unloving manner. Paul says your tongue speaking is nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The Corinthians were famous for the production of brass. It was one of their main industries. And gongs were made of brass. Paul says, your gift of tongues in the church is nothing more than meaningless clamor. Empty noise. Like people trying to play a musical instrument who don't know how to play. Your exercise of gifts is chatter without charity. Language without love. Let's look at the second and third if statement. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Prophecy is the ability to communicate revelation from God in a spontaneous utterance. Faith, that's not salvation faith, that's faith to trust God for enormous things. Tongues without love, prophecy without love, now faith without love. The fourth and final if statement, the fifth, notice verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul mentions miraculous gifts and non-miraculous gifts. Some in this church had the gift of giving. They were willing to experience extreme sacrifice. Their charitable activity was so radical, you would think Paul would praise it. They are willing to give up everything. They, they throw their whole checkbook in the offering plate. They donate millions to charity. But it was benevolence without love. I don't love people, but I'll feed them. They are willing to make spectacular sacrifices. Uh, I'll give you my lung in a transplant, but I will not give you my love. They are even willing to die as a martyr, have their bodies burned to take a stand for Christ. Paul says, don't be willing to die for Christ when you're not even willing to love each other. Your body goes up in flames, but you don't love others in the body, so that equals nothing for you there are no shortcuts to love not even martyrdom Paul used his five if statements now Paul employs hyperbole we will walk through the same verses again but instead of looking for if statements this time we will look for hyperbole verse 1 if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels wait do angels have their own dialect 
The Pentecostals contest this is some heavenly language unknown by the speaker but known in heaven. That's not it. Paul is using hyperbolic language. He is saying, if I started speaking in an unlearned human language, tongues, or even if I spoke in the language of angels, which nobody does, even if I had those gifts of such magnitude, both of those things would be absolutely useless without love. I don't think there's a such thing as a private prayer language. The more I study scripture, the more convinced I become in this area. The angelic tongue is not a secret heavenly language, a private prayer language. And I know that because Paul is using hyperbole. We understand figures of speech, and he does it again in verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand, notice this, all mysteries and all knowledge. Prophets knew some things, but they don't know all things. They don't understand everything. He's mentioning the gift, then a hyperbole of the gift. See the pattern? Gift of tongues, then a hyperbole of the gift. Gift of prophecy, then a hyperbole of the gift. Again in verse 2 with the third gift. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains. Faith to believe God for great things, even to remove mountains. Where did the Rocky Mountains go? Oh, I moved them. That's clearly hyperbole. That's the gift of faith, then the gift in hyperbole. The hyperbolic expression touches all three gifts. Now, what is Paul doing with his use of if statements and hyperboles? He's making a series of value statements. None of the spiritual gifts matter if you don't have love. It's an unbelievable rebuke. He says it in the most provocative way. None of your activity matters if it's not done in love. Love makes the gift valuable. Love makes the gift useful, beneficial. Love matters because without it, nothing else will. Now let's do some divine mathematics. Because your calculator adds differently than God's. Three wonderful, miraculous gifts minus love equals nothing. Three minus one equals zero. This is the most gifted church in the Bible. All these gifts without love equal nothing in God's sight. Would you write something? Would you write three zeros? Just one zero after another zero after another zero. Zero, zero, zero. That's a string of zeros. That's your busyness without love. That's what it's worth to God. Now, put a, put a digit in front of those zeros. Maybe a five or a six or a seven. That's love. See how love empowers the gifts? Love is greater. See the preeminence of love, the superiority of love. I have quite a few love truths sprinkled throughout. Here's the first. FFC can be strong in gifts, but weak in love.
FFC can be strong in gifts, but weak in love. We can be serving one another, meeting with one another, counseling with one another, laboring with one another, but not liking one another. We can sacrifice for one another, but not truly care for one another. I'm giving you money, I'm giving you rights to work, I'm sending you articles, buying you books, talking through things with you, but I don't love you. We do not want to be loveless in our use of gifts. This church, they are exercising their gifts in the church. God's gifts are functioning, but God's love is absent. How scary is that? All these things are possible without love. The church can be really busy in service to one another, yet lacking love for one another. We can get a lot of things done, and it count for nothing in eternity. It is possible to do super religious things for people while despising them. Corinth was impressive on the outside, busy on the outside, full of ministries, every member serving without love for one another. Religious activity without love. Does that describe any of your work here on Sunday? Religious activity without love. Do you remember in verse 1 I mentioned the, the bronze gong and the clanging cymbal? Those were actually used during pagan worship in Corinth. The original readers, they're picking up on that. This is what Paul is saying to the church. Your gifts without love are pagan worship. Your gifts without love are pagan worship. The second love truth, FFC can be doctrinally strong but lovingly weak. FFC can be doctrinally strong but lovingly weak. Lovingly weak. We may have great doctrine, deep preaching, but it's a zero without love. You could have the greatest expositor known to man, but his sermons are nothing without love. This church had major gifts of communication. Tongues, prophecy, teaching. We say, look at all the theology. God says, look at the lack of love. All your expositions are worth nothing without love. Right theology is not a substitute for love. And neither is giftedness. If we are strong on theology, we better be strong on love. Or something in our theology isn't as strong as we first thought it was. We can doctrinize one another while not loving one another. What does it look like when you stop loving people in your local church? You stay busy. You stay serving. You stay solid on, in doctrine. But you do it all without love. I have found it harder to guard my love 
than my doctrine. What it looks like when you stop loving people in your local church. Now, what it looks like when you start loving people in your local church. You will not find a definition of love in this section. Sometimes definitions are destructive. Instead, you find a description of what love does. Paul doesn't use mostly adjectives to describe love, but verbs. Descriptions of actions. Verbs. Fifteen of them. Love is dynamic and active, not static. It's energetic. It moves. It jumps. It verbs. Love verbs. And it verbs like nothing else. Paul starts with two positive statements, then a long list of negative statements where the verbs run wild. So let's just repent our way through the text this morning. Verse 4. Love is patient. Do you make excuses for your impatience? Let me, let me testify. I've never had a problem with impatience. Only other people's slowness. <laughs> you see how I self-justify my sin of impatience? I'm not impatient. They're just slow. Most of us are impatient with patience. Impatience only thinks about yourself and your time. You say, Kyle, I, I lose my temper a lot, but it's over in a few seconds. Well, so is a nuclear bomb. <laughs> the, the length doesn't negate the destructiveness. Patience means you are long of anger. You are long burning. Love doesn't pop off an angry text or email or social media post. Who in this church do you need to exercise more patience toward? When you start loving people, you will be more patient toward them. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. This is the active and passive faces of Christian love. Patience can be passive. Kindness is active. Going out of your way and inconvenience to your schedule to show love to someone in the body. This is not a random list, but rather a descriptor of problems Paul discovered in this local church. They were losing patience with one another. And they stopped doing kind acts toward one another. This can happen in a local church. Paul says, church at Corinth, you're bickering about I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. During all the bickering, you stopped loving each other. Where did your acts of kindness toward one another go? FFC, when is the last time you went out of your way out of your schedule, out of your pocket, out of your comfort zone to do an act of kindness towards someone in the church. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't envy. It just celebrates. 
Why can't you celebrate that she's expecting a child? Why can't you celebrate that they got a new house? Why can't you celebrate that he got a promotion at work? Love does not have an inferiority complex. Love does not burn with envy. Why a sullen feeling of disappointment when others have success? Why are you beyond complimenting other people? Envy was behind much of the party strife in Corinth, and it's behind much of the party strife in every local church. When someone gains a recognition that we want for ourselves, envy grows, and it grows green. Paul now goes from addressing an inferiority complex to a superiority complex. Envy tears others down, boasting, build yourself up. Envy wants what someone else has. Boasting is trying to make others envy what you have. Paul says, don't be a windbag. Lo love is living without competing. In conversation, do you always bring it back around to yourself? And what you've accomplished and how you have a story that's even better than that. Love makes no parade of itself. Love does not brag about your successes or talent. Love doesn't name drop. When you feel boasting rising up in your heart, put a hand over your mouth. In this church, some, some were filled with envy because they didn't have the upfront gifts. Some were filled with boasting because they did have the upfront gifts. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like when you start loving people in your local church, you celebrate their victories and you minimize your own. You are other-oriented. You are not walking around here with an inferiority complex or a superiority complex. Your identity is rooted in the gift giver, not the gift. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. One pastor said, arrogance is big-headed, love is big-hearted. Don't be loud-mouthed and cocky. There's no room for that in the church. Love doesn't have a swollen head. Love doesn't strut. Love does not have a peacock syndrome. A bunch of strutting was happening in the church at Corinth, which revealed they didn't really understand the gospel. You can't have an accurate view of the gospel and then strut. The gospel humbles. The gospel deflates the head, not inflates the head. When we start loving others, there will be a lot less fat-headed people among us. Verse 5, or rude. Love does not behave disgracefully toward another person. It doesn't cut the other person down and it doesn't cut the other person off. The busy church became the rude church. Rude described their responses to one another. Quick, sharp, unguarded. He continues, love does not insist on its own way. Love is not narcissistically fixating on itself. 
Love does not elbow its way in. Love isn't self-seeking. There are so many small ways the church at Corinth was failing to show love. One was that they were willing. They, they, one was that they were always insisting on their own way. When you start loving other people in this body, things will not always have to go the way you want. You will prefer something, but not insist on it because of love. Your preferences will often be laying in the dirt somewhere. You are not supposed to always get your way in the church. That is a Corinthian mindset. Now, strong personalities, and I'm one of them, strong personalities have to guard against this. Verse 5 continues, love does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable. Do people always have to walk on eggshells around you? You're temperamental, touchy, thin-skinned, easily triggered, you fly off the handle, one way you can tell if you are this person is if others, if they always come up to you saying sorry. One way you can tell is if you are this person is if others can sense your irritability and, and a natural repercussion of that is they're always coming up to you saying sorry when they bring something to you. Hey, sorry, I... Hey, sorry, I... You can't... Be easily irritated. You should not have a hair trigger. You need to be long-tempered. Have a long fuse. To bridge the verbs here, have love has a long fuse, but it has a short memory. Love has a long fuse, but it has a short memory. Verse 5. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love never takes revenge for being insulted. Love does not retaliate. Love does not contemplate evil. Thinking about how if you get the opportunity, you are going to tell them off. Love does not keep books on wrongs. So why are you why are you always ready to bring up that wrong someone did to you? Always ready to build a case against them. Nursing old wounds. Haven't you discovered once you've re-stirred the pot, it all comes quickly to a boil? Past wrongs should be like spent ammunition. Bullets that can't be fired again. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't always harbor a sense of injury. One author wrote, one author wrote about a certain tribal Polynesian custom where most of the men were always either embroiled in fighting or feasting. It was customary for them, he says, 
to keep certain items to remind them of their enemies and their hatred for them. They literally suspend articles from the interior ceilings of their huts to keep alive the memory of their wrongs. Some of you do that. Just not in a hut, in a heart. Love doesn't keep a mental ledger of offenses against us. It doesn't keep a logbook of people's sins toward you. Christian, Christ doesn't keep a logbook of your sins, so you shouldn't keep a logbook of other sins. Whatever has been done to you is small beans compared to what you have done to Christ. When a church starts loving one another, they will have amnesia when it comes to the wrongs others in the church have done to them. They refuse to nurse old wounds, which is the opposite of what the Corinthians were doing. They were always reliving the wrongs others in the church had done to them. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It is sad to see people thrive on gossip, to enjoy it so much. Love doesn't gain pleasure from that. When someone that has in the past deeply offended or wounded you suddenly has a misfortune, and for a moment you start to smile... That's called rejoicing at misfortunes. Do not take malicious joy and gloating over people's failures. We do not take pleasure in the failures of others. I remember a pastor who used to literally rejoice when people who had previously left his church ended up falling into sin. I watched it had conversations with him about it he would say I told them if they left me this would happen then smile he, he was gloating in the misfortune of others the wrongdoing of others and it was so ugly in his life shortly after it became ignored in my life I found myself reacting the same way to people whom I thought had wronged me. That is wicked and made God rid us of it. Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Paul gives a pair of verbal opposites. Don't rejoice in that, rather rejoice in this. Beloved, love isn't what you've been force-fed Love cannot rejoice in sin. Love can only rejoice in truth. How many of you have ever heard this? Well, if you loved me, you just want me to be happy. That's always in the context of someone justifying their sin. Love doesn't equal unconditional affirmation. Love isn't always telling you what you want to hear. We have such a soft generation in the Western church. It is regarded as unloving to speak strongly on sin issues. Any firm discipline is too harsh. They call out, I, I feel condemned. I feel unloved. No, that is love. 
Love doesn't rejoice at sin. Love will not run from confrontation. That's fake friendship. That's a distortion of love. Love never allows you to continue in sin and give you words of rejoicing while you're in it. We know the church at Corinth refused to call out sin in their midst. Paul says, if you are loving, you will not rejoice in their sin. You will confront it. If our church practices biblical love, we will be confronting one another's sins on a regular basis. Who in the body? Who in the body is not living a truthful life, yet you are still high-fiving them, congratulating them, laughing with them? You are rejoicing in their sin when you should be Rejoicing in truth. Verse 7. Love bears all things. We need these bears in the assembly. Not polar bears or black bears or brown bears. We need love bears. <laughs> People are going to do you wrong. This is a reality. You are going to have to put up with some things. When you're constantly talking about your woundedness and how badly people have treated you, that's self-pity. You are always feeling slighted because you have not learned to bear things. People that bear all things aren't always getting their feelings hurt. Love bears all things and believes all things. This, of course, is not supporting unlimited gullibility. This is simply saying love is not cynical. It's not always suspicious and doubting toward others. I thought about asking you to point out someone who was cynical, but I'm afraid you don't point at me. Love is not always suspicious and doubting of others. It is eager to believe what is good about them. Love does not nitpick. It leaves a lot of room for things to play out. Wayne Grudem wrote this, and I quote, Where love abounds in the fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound. End quote. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love never gives in and never gives up. It stands against all opposition and refuses to lose hope. It is ever hopeful of that spouse's salvation and of that prodigal's return. Love does not become cantankerous when disappointed. Love is hope-filled. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There is no crisis in the home or the church that can shatter your faith. 
Love says, I'm almost home, and I'm going to hang in there until the end. Love, and we're going to do this later, love sings to one another. We are almost home. Endure a little longer. Jesus is coming. And it's here that I would like to give you the third love truth. The gospel propels you to put feet to loving your local church. The Corinthians needed a path forward, and God gave them one. This is what it looks like when you start loving your local church. Beloved, let's not merely talk about love. Let's be about love. During the 60s in the anti-war movement, the Beatles wrote a song entitled, All You Need Is Love. It was during the flower power movement. One of the spaces in time I'm so glad God did not see fit to place me. <laughs> there they are, singing to the world about how the world needed to love one another. Paul McCartney wore a red rose that day. People thought, oh, it's a sign of love. Actually, John Lennon told McCartney to only wear green that day. McCartney was mad and wore a red rose out of spite. There they are singing about love, but not practicing it. Sounds a lot like the church at Corinth. I don't know anyone that needs this text more than I do. Before I ever exposited it verse by verse, I repented through it verse by verse. Only Jesus can keep us from these sins. Only Jesus can create this love for others inside of us. He gives us the ability to love difficult people. Where we meet God's commands in the Bible, we also meet his enabling grace. He has not called you to do anything that he has not enabled you to do. There is no self-reformation. You can't do this on your own. The loveless church needs to peer again upon the God who is love. He gives a capacity to love that is not natural. I don't always reveal this to you, but I, but I have a goal for each sermon, each exposition. I usually write it out, but it never makes it into the sermon. I thought it should on this occasion. I turn that goal into a prayer which is not unusual in this process of mine. I'll read to you what I wrote. It's a prayer. Father, help this text to make our church more loving. Where we are impatient with one another, that would cease. Where we are judgmental, it would stop. Father, I ask that this text would motivate our members to pray that they would be more loving. To think of specific acts of love that they could do this week. And to see Jesus as the perfection of love. On our best day, we long to give this love. And on our worst day, we long to receive it. Which leads us to our fourth love truth. Who among us has perfectly loved God's church. Who among us 
has perfectly loved God's church. (laughs) None of us. We all leave these verses covered in stains of sin. All we need to do is simply replace the word love with our name and we will see how horribly we have failed to live this text. Let's do that. Kyle is patient and kind. Kyle does not envy or boast. Kyle is not arrogant or rude. Kyle does not insist on his own way. Kyle is not irritable or resentful. Kyle does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Kyle bears all things. Kyle believes all things. Kyle hopes all things. Kyle endures all things. Beloved, nothing has ever been further from the truth than what I just read to you. Some of you may fare a little better than me, but you too have fallen so short. If your salvation rested on how well you kept those four verses, you would burn in hell forever. Truth of the matter is, that's why God the Father sent the Son. He is the personification of love, the perfection of love. He's the only one who obeyed these four verses perfectly. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Jesus died and rose from the dead to save those who have failed to keep that list perfectly. See, Paul is actually writing a biography of Jesus Christ. What it looks like when you stop loving people in your local church, what it looks like when you start loving people in your local church, and the last, it's shorter, don't worry, reasons why you should never settle for anything less than loving people in your local church. Your temptation, and I want you to hear me. I say it and then the Holy Spirit can make it land. That's what I'm confident of. Your temptation is going to, to, to be this. You will do activity without love. Give your hands, but not your heart. To think that busyness will cover your lack of love. And that's why you must be relentless in evaluating your heart. Don't be too busy for love. Refuse to settle for acts not done in love. Verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Paul will take their three most valued gifts. Tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. Their most upfront, sensational gifts. And Paul says, they're all going to pass away. Like a flower that will fade, they will wilt. Now, if angelic tongues mentioned earlier wasn't hyperbole in an actual heavenly language, why would they cease when we get to heaven? When you actually see angels, the angelic tongues cease? 
Paul was using hyperbole with angelic tongues, but the actual gift of tongues, they will no longer be needed. Spiritual gifts should be viewed as ultimate. Spiritual gifts should never be viewed as ultimate. Love is ultimate. Love alone perseveres. Spiritual gifts are not permanent. Reasons why you should never settle for anything less than loving people in your local church. Reason one, love lasts forever. Love never dies. It never ceases to exist. Love is on the old earth and it will be on the new earth. See the permanence of love. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The perfect here is not the completion of Scripture. It's not referring to the New Testament canon. That has sometimes been taught, but that's, that, that's actually what I was taught. But the perfect here refers to the coming of Christ, the consummation of all things. When the renewal of all things appears, that which is partial disappears. When the king returns, the gifts will have served their purpose, and they will gladly depart into retirement. Paul wants to show the church that spiritual gifts are temporary. They only exist for the building up of the body. Once the body is made perfect by Christ's return, gifts are no longer needed. The word partial here does not equate with wrong or insufficient. They are God's good gifts to the church, but they are temporal. Paul tells the church, stop putting so much stock in them. These gifts that are causing so much trouble in the church are temporary. Love is permanent. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Paul will now give two analogies to compare the present time with the future time. Both analogies give you this truth, which is our second reason. You don't see things as clearly as you think you do. You don't see things as clearly as you think you do. Gifts were given to fulfill a temporary purpose. When glory dawns, gifts are no longer needed. Like adults don't need a pacifier, so we will not need gifts. At Christ's second coming, all childishness will be gone. We will leave those infant ways for good. Imperfect understanding, that of a child, will disappear. As wonderful as the gifts are, they are temporary and belong to a period of spiritual infancy. Adulthood is coming. First analogy, child, adult. Second analogy, mirror, face to face. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know. Even as I have been fully known. Friend, remember that. The next time you think you're right on everything, you still see through a dark glass dimly. Dimly in the original speaks of a riddle or a puzzle or an enigma. Dark mirror makes sense in the already not yet eschatological category Paul uses. Corinth was famous for mirrors. Mirror making was a trade practice in the city. Mirrors in the first century were polished metal. It provided a fair enough reflection, but it was no substitute for the real person. This text is not teaching we will see the face of God the Father. God doesn't have a face, of course. 
Paul uses this analogy to denote the greater clarity we will have on the other side. Then we shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, I love that. God's knowledge of Paul is not growing and becoming more and more perfect. God will not know you perfectly then. He already knows you perfectly now. Verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. A trilogy of things that will cease, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, with a trilogy of things that will continue, faith, hope, and love. All three Christian graces will endure. All three go, go on for eternity. But the greatest is love. Love outstrips them all. Reasons why you should never settle for anything less than loving people in the local church. I'll leave you with this. Love is beautiful and bloody. Love is beautiful and bloody. God never intended for you to be lost in the poetry of 1 Corinthians 13. I realize this chapter is different in tone than the content from the chapter preceding it and following it. It carries a beautiful, elevated, poetic rhythm. It's almost hymnic. It dazzles the mind and makes the heart flutter. The sheer beauty can stun us and leave us mesmerized. This is why this passage is often read in weddings. If this passage was read in your wedding, I hate to tell you, but it was out of context. This is not about romantic love. This is about church love. We've watched Love Verb. The most beautiful example of love verbing wasn't in a church or in a poem. It was on a cross. Love is beautiful and love is bloody. God in love sent his son Jesus Christ to hang on that Roman instrument of torture. He bore the sin of mankind. Non-Christian, we, we want you to witness our love for one another and leave saying, Wow, that, that love is beautiful. But don't get it twisted. Our love can motivate, only his love can atone. You must have your sins forgiven. Father, a church that is the recipient of this bloody love should never be coined the loveless church. Help us, please, to live out this agape, this Christian love. Here is love, our bloody Savior hanging on a cross. Here is love, he's rising from the dead. Amen.